Welcome to Relevant Parties by Carhartt Work in Progress. I'm Charles Ravens, and in this series, I'm going behind the scenes at some of the world's best independent record labels to meet the visionaries and the obsessives who've made musical history. In each episode, we sit down with one of these label founders to find out what makes them tick. We hear the tall tales and big ideas behind some of the most influential records and scenes of the past 30 years, and maybe try to work out just what possessed them to take on one of the most challenging jobs in the music industry. My guest this week is Chris Manak, better known to the world as Peanut Butter Wolf. It's an alias he's had since his teenage years growing up in San Jose, California. And one thing about Peanut Butter Wolf, or Wolf to his friends, is that he has always wanted to run a record label. Always. This guy wrote an essay in high school dreaming about running his own record label. And now, nearly 25 years after launching Stone's Throw Records, he is as dedicated to that dream as ever. I like to think of Peanut Butter Wolf as a pure record label guy. He's kind of classic. He's kind of old school. He has a huge personal collection of vinyl records, famously. He keeps everything. He archives it. He really cares about vinyl as a format. And as a label boss, he's really only interested in releasing music that he likes. That is basically it. But among the many kinds of music you can find on Stone Throw, there are some standouts that rank among the greatest hip-hop records ever made, centering around the genius that is Mad Lib, who's been in the Stone's Throw universe since pretty much the beginning, and his work with the late great Jay Diller and the masked man MF Doom. But although Stone's Throw is indelibly associated with this particular strand of hip-hop, that kind of jazzy, sampledelic sound that came through in all of Mad Lib's music and the legacy of Dilla and his crate-digging disciples. Stone's Throw is actually a very broad church. You've got Maya Hawthorne doing vintage soul. You've got all kinds of eccentric funk and pop hybrids from the Step Kids and Dame Funk. You've got Gary Wilson doing lo-fi new wave, this kind of relic from the 70s. And then a massive hit single in the middle of that from a man called Aloe Black. So Peanut Butter Wolf dialed in from his base in LA to talk about the heady days when Mad Lib, Dilla and Doom were shacked up at Stone's Throw HQ, just making amazing records day in, day out. Uh, we talked about Wolf's early years in San Jose and the tragic loss of Charisma, the young rapper who was his closest childhood friend and partner in rhyme. We talked about Aloe Black and the extraordinary experience of having a hit single that you're maybe not that in love with. <laughs> and we also talked a lot about the documentary that was made about Stone's Throw several years ago, Our Vinyl Weighs a Ton, uh, which was really interesting. If you saw that doc, you'll want to listen to what Wolf has to say about it all. So here we go. This is Relevant Parties meets Stone's Throw Records. Hi. How are you? I'm not too bad. How are you? I'm good. I wanted to start off with a broader question. So one of the ideas behind this podcast series um, is to think about the role that independent record labels have had in shaping music and culture and bringing new, uh, maybe experimental ideas into the mainstream, being a kind of conduit for adventurous ideas, I guess. Um, but on the flip side, I think what it means to be independent or underground has changed quite a lot, definitely changed in the time that you've had a label. Um, the role of the indie record label has has changed quite a lot. And I found this article about Stone's Throw on the website Forbes, um, 
And Forbes is, for want of a better word, um, I guess it's a website about business and money. Yeah. <laughs> and the title of this interview was When Putting Art Before Economics Actually Works, mm-hmm. which I found quite funny. Because um, yeah. the writer is suggesting that normally what works, quote unquote, is to put the economics first. Um, right. Uh, and I know that you also, I know that you have a degree in marketing, right? A long time ago. That was your degree. Yeah, back in the olden days, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you'll have thought about uh, a lot of this in, in school and in life, I guess. Um, so I wondered if you think that being an independent record label means putting art before economics. Uh, well, the art part for me is like why I enjoy doing it. And then I also do have to consider the well-being of the artists like everyone that I work with I, I want to be able to help them make money and help them make a career out of it so I don't really want to jump on board with someone if I don't think I'm going to be able to help them make money or help them make a career out of it so it, it, it that part gets tricky and then I also you know I have a staff that I have to make sure I'm paying and so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I mean everything that I I sign is something that I like, you know, that that's that's first and foremost. But then I also do have to believe that there's going then I'm going to be able to find other people who like it as well. And right now, you know, it's it's a lot of streaming and stuff like that. Uh I mean more so than ever these two months with the pandemic we're dealing with, but yeah, it's the balance thing, and I'm a Libra, so I'm. Libras say that they're very balanced, and then people who are not Libras say no, they're seeking balance. But you know, whichever you believe, balance is like <laughs> a part of that. Are you a believer in astrology? Yeah, a lot of times it seems kind of spot on, but I don't. I don't like read it all. The, yeah, yeah, I'm not like. Yeah, I, I can't say. Oh, you're a Leo, so I know this and this and this about you. I think it's, I always yeah. say that I hate it, but I'm a Capricorn, and then people who know about astrology are like, "Oh, well, oh, of course you don't believe in astrology because you're a Capricorn." Oh, so exactly. <laughs> maybe <laughs> I've caught I don't even up. know what Capricorn. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what makes like boring goat, hardworking something. I don't relate. Okay. I don't relate at all. Um, okay, so we'll get onto some of the the kind of history the iconic records, the weirder records. Um, but I wanted to actually, following on from the art and economics, I wanted to get the the big hit out of the way. Because okay. uh, Stone Stone had a pop hit, a hit single, I Need a Dollar by Alan yeah. Black, yeah. Uh, which went platinum in a few countries. Um, I think I it was bigger there than song. it was here even. Oh yeah, my dad would know this song, you know. This, yeah. is, this is a big hit. Um, and I was wondering how you cope with having a hit like that because... In a way, it's it's so much bigger and so much more unwieldy than an independent record label is set up to to manage. How do you how do you cope with having an unexpected platinum hit single? Well, I mean, you mentioned your dad, and yeah, my mom's seventy five, and that's probably the only artist that she knows on Stone's Throw. And like, whenever I talk to her, she goes, "Oh, I saw I saw Ella Black on Dancing with the Stars," and you know, like. She's like major, like, that's the only, I mean, that literally is the only artist that she knows. And, um, I mean, (laughs) when I signed Allo, I signed him for his voice. I thought he had a great voice. And I also just hanging out with him, he just had a great attitude. And I'm like, this guy is going to go far. 
So we did one album with him that was kind of more like future jazz sounding, like kind of Giles Peterson style or whatever. Yeah, I guess Giles Peterson's a genre in a way. Oh yeah, and, <laughs> in the UK, I think he counts as a genre. Yeah, and I and I loved his first album, and then after that, he just kept turning stuff in that I I wasn't really into, and and he had. I don't know, it just it didn't really have any edge to it or whatever. And I I just kept like being like, Oh yeah, that's cool, but I, I think you should keep recording, keep recording and I was like basically like that label nightmare guy that I never wanted to be. You know, <laughs> when I when I signed with a label with a major label as as a well, I was gonna say a kid, but I guess I was early twenties. I wanted that label to just sign me because they liked what I, I did. And so with Stone's Throw, I always do that. I, I only sign people where I'm, I'm not trying to change them, like where I hear something and I already like it the way it is. That It never really ends up working that way. And with Aloe, like, I liked his early stuff and then he started changing and everybody changes. You know, everyone goes different directions and that's that's life. And I almost didn't put that album out. I, I wasn't really into the direction he was going. And, you know, right, like... Uh, to rewind back, before putting out Allah's album, I, I put out some stuff with an artist, Mayor Hawthorne, who is a, a rapper who I heard some stuff that where he was singing and I, I wanted to put that out. And then Aloe heard that and I was like, oh, he's doing that retro thing. I can do that. But I just, I don't know. I didn't really, I, I didn't like the way it was going so much. And I was, yeah, I was this close for to not putting out I Need a Dollar. And I know Aloe, was frustrated and I, you know I, I I totally understand that and you know it it basically yeah it did bigger than any of us thought it would a lot of it was because of his work ethic and you know doing understanding when opportunities come to to jump at him and you know he was doing all these shows in Europe and he he just kept kind of climbing up the ladder of doing all the festivals and stuff and and he wasn't getting any gigs in the U.S. like that. His gigs in the U.S. were probably like a fraction of what he was making in Europe. So he just kept going where the money was. Like, ironically, I need a dollar. And <laughs> he blew up, yeah, big out there. And then the Vici thing hit. And then that was even yeah. bigger. And and then, um, you know, we worked out a deal with a, a major label to kind of take over the project and stuff. And But, it, it, yeah, it was already like without the major label help, we had already like achieved a lot pretty much. Are you quite a hands-on A&R type of label boss? Do you get involved in like sequencing and artwork and kind of ideas for concepts for albums and things? I enjoy that. I mean, being a DJ, you know, like a DJ is basically just somebody who takes other people's music and like sequences it and, you know, tries to tell a story with it or whatever without over romanticizing it. But yeah, I mean, that's the, that's what I really enjoy doing. Like, you know, to this day with the artists, I, I still, and, and some artists, they have like a clear vision the whole way. And then some guys are like, Hey, I, I, I want you to be involved with that part of it. John Carroll Kirby, for example, he's like, Hey, you want to, you want to sequence the album? I'm like, Oh, I, I'm, I'd be honored. Thank you. You know, so <laughs> uh, it's not like I don't just plug in a, plug it into every artist. Like everyone's, you know, I have my own relationships with all, all the guys. Yeah. And I guess these days it's so easy to just release a record if that's all you want to do, that in a sense, part of what a label can really do for you is is be that kind of uh, sounding board and trust somebody to guide you through the process a little bit. It is kind of that mutual respect thing, yeah. 
So let's rewind, take it back. You grew up in San Jose. So that's a city that's just south of San Francisco. Um, I yes. guess for some people that's Silicon Valley. <laughs> Correct. Um, what was San Jose like for you as a kid growing up there? So my dad um, was in the army and then he was also like a software engineer, aerospace engineer, and he moved to the Bay Area eventually because of the Silicon Valley thing. So I moved there when I was six. And then I got into hip hop and well, I got into like funk and soul, I guess, when I was nine and disco and, and rap. Rapper's Delight had just come out. This was 1979. Yeah, music was like my everything, even as a child, I guess. Um, were you listening to music that people in San Jose were listening to? Was that what you heard around on the streets and stuff? That's a, Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so there was a roller rink called Calskate where you would hear a, a lot of that music. You would hear... Cool. You'd hear a lot of the funk cameo and the Gap Band and, and that sort of thing. And yeah, as a preteen or whatever, like 10, 12 year old, you either liked soul or you liked rock and you weren't really allowed to like both. So <laughs> I, I was like really into, I mean, through through disco, I, I learned about soul and funk. And there was a, a radio station called KSOL, K-Soul. That, that was like, yeah, how I found all my music and stuff in the early days. And then... You know, when Rapper's Delight came out, that was the first hip hop like record. But anything like like there was a song Double Dutch Bus to me, that was a that was hip hop as a kid. But mm. looking back, people are like, no, that's not. It's like a, that was an old dude trying to do what the kids are doing or whatever. I guess I got deeper and deeper into hip hop and San Jose wasn't so much of a hip hop city at that point, like in the mid to late, I guess in the late 80s. Like I got my first turntables when I was 14. I, I had like a mixer and was learning how to DJ because of this mm -hmm. song called Rocket by Herbie Hancock that had scratching. And all mm -hmm. I wanted to do was scratch. I didn't care about like mixing or I didn't even care about having two turntables as long as I had like <laughs> some, like I could play a tape and then scratch along with it with my turntable as long as I had a mixer with a crossfader. So that was really big for me. <laughs> I, I have a tape of me like when... I just took the song Numbers by Kraftwerk and just played it over and over and over again and just kept scratching. like, And I just, you know, recorded the whole thing. And so, That's but, nice yeah. to think of how influential that particular song is as well, given that Florian Schneider has just left this earth. And I was, I was reading about Numbers recently and the kind of impact it had just on Detroit as a city and like yeah. crazy how, how, it, how so many songs were taken from the man machine and turned into like electro tracks or techno tracks. Exactly. Or... And I was talking to Moody man and he was telling me like when Kraftwerk went to Detroit, I don't remember if he said he went to the show, but he was telling me the story that when Kraftwerk did their show in Detroit, they looked out into the audience and the whole audience was black and they were like, Oh, we, I think we were at the wrong spot. Like, cause they're just <laughs> used to having a white audience in Germany, yeah. you know? And it was pretty incredible to see, you know, other people like just, appreciating it um i did a festival last year in croatia and one of the main reasons why i agreed to do it was because i heard that Kraftwerk were doing it and i'd never seen <laughs> them live so i get to croatia and you know the guy's showing me around and i'm all so uh when is Kraftwerk on and they said oh it's a two-day festival and they played yesterday you played today like, oh, oh shit that is a long way to go to fail to see Kraftwerk. <laughs> i'm surprised you've never seen them though i've never seen them I know, it's pretty crazy. So I know that you wrote an essay. This is part of the Stone's Throw Law, is that you wrote an essay in high school about wanting to run a record label. Is that right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, but why, see, as a kid, you could want to do all kinds of things in the music industry. There are loads of jobs out there that would be kind of fun. But why was record label owner something that you already kind of knew about and wanted? Yeah, I just, so at that point, this was like 85, 86, and all my favorite hip hop records were coming out on independent labels. So I just saw that as like, yeah, I mean, that just even cooler than being in an, you know, being on stage or anything would be like to actually put out these records of this cool music that I loved. What kind of labels were you inspired by? Uh, there was a label, Beauty and the Beat. I remember I was trying to get signed to them at one point, and that was like kind of one of the lesser known ones, but like Sleeping Bag, I guess, it was putting out a lot of cool hip hop that I liked, and Jive was doing some good stuff, um, Cold Chillin'. Yeah, there was a lot. There was a label, Sunny View, but there, you know, these certain labels, like when I went into the record store, and with hip hop, most of the hip hop I was buying, you couldn't hear it on the radio. There, you know, there obviously was no internet. So the way you would find out about it was either through a mixtape from another DJ or physically going into the record store and just looking at stuff and taking a chance. You know, it's, it's easy to take a chance when there's artwork that has what the group looks like and, and the back of the record says what instruments are used and that kind of thing. But a lot of these <laughs> hip hop records didn't have any artwork. It, was, it just said the name of the group and the name of the song. And I guess by the name of the group, you could go, oh, that sounds like a rapper. I'm going to buy that. But the label was really important. So the Sunny View records would always have that same look to them. And you would just kind of buy, you know, based on the label that it was on. And you're already buying a lot of records by this point, right? Yeah. So I, I, I mean, during this quarantine, <laughs> what I've been doing is I've been just writing down all the records that I bought as a kid and just by year. Like so. Oh, wow. And it's, it ends up being like 100 records a year, which is like two records a week, I guess, you know. And, and I would just, that would just be like what I would save. Like I would just wouldn't eat at school. My mom would give me money for lunch and I would just save it and <laughs> just use it on the records. And you've kept everything from that time. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't never, I never really get rid of it, but I, I do rebuy records that I had back then. So it's hard to say, <laughs> like, is it the one that I bought in 1979 <laughs> or did I buy it in 1982? Or? So around this time you decided to try out your own record company, PMR Records. Oh, yeah. So that um, was in 1990. What's, what's the PMR for? Poetical Movement Records. <laughs> this, this didn't go so well, right? No, that was in San Jose. And at the time, I was, um, I was a DJ at KSJS, which is San Jose State's um, radio station. And they had a, a hip-hop show called Project Sound. Basically, the program director of that, and then this, her name was Kim Collette, and this guy, George Hudley, they both... Were DJs and they wanted to put this record out and they saved some money and then they asked me if I wanted to go in on it with them. So we each put $500 in and for $1,500 we pressed 500 copies of this record. But we didn't know anything about mastering or distribution. I mean, so then we had all these records and went, what are we going to do with them, you know? And <laughs> it sounded horrible because it wasn't mastered, so it was, it sounded really lo-fi. But I liked, I liked how it sounded. I liked I always liked raw. I never, I never liked things too polished. So it was fine by me. And now it's like one of those Discogs records. It's like $500. But who was the artist on the record? They're, the artist is called Lyrical Prophecy. And it was two rappers and two producers, myself and this other guy. Well, he went by DJ Raleem and now he goes by King Assassin. He does more gangster rap now. 
Um, and around that time, well, maybe even earlier, you got the Peanut Butter Wolf name. Uh, yeah, I, 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 do, I think a lot of people probably know the story, but why are you called Peanut Butter Wolf? Yeah, it's, it's almost like losing a bet, but it was basically my girlfriend at the time, her little brother. We were playing this game Candyland with him. I don't know if, if that game's mm. in the UK too, probably not. But anyways, yeah, we were trying to scare the kid. We were turning the light off, and then he said, oh, turn on the light, the peanut butter wolf is going to get me. And uh, But it just sounded so weird, you know, and I was 19 at the time, and then um, I, I was in a punk band with, with my brother, my brother was like seven and he was the lead singer or eight. <laughs> and so we would always sing songs about this peanut butter wolf character. And then I was making beats for this guy Charisma and he, he heard the punk rock stuff and he's like, oh, that's a, that's a cool name. You should change your DJ name to peanut butter wolf. So, so you've met Charisma at this point who becomes uh, a partner in crime of sorts. Um, tell me, tell me what you, what did you have in common with Charisma? Why did you two form a, a bond as kids? So I put out that record first in 1990. And then at that point, like pretty much I, there was no, there was no hip hop groups in San Jose that had an actual record out. So after that came out, pretty much every rapper in the neighborhood or not even the neighborhood in the city, like knew about us and was like, oh, we want to you know, meet these guys and work with them and stuff. So it was really easy for me to find talent after putting out that first record. And a guy from my high school, he brought Charisma over my house and Charisma was 16, he was in high school. And I was like 19 or 20. At that point, I I had this idea. I wanted to do a compilation album with all different rappers where I was making the beats for all of them. I wanted Charisma to be part of that, but it was hard. I was really like, there were so many people like I was trying to keep a schedule okay this person comes over Monday this person Wednesday whatever and Charisma was like man come on like he was really really frustrated and he's like well I'm the best out of all the rappers you're working with so eventually you're gonna drop them all and just work with me only and it was kind of like a mind game I think or I don't, I don't even know if he meant it that way but you know it ended up being the case and like I noticed with a lot of the other rappers I was working with, our bond was just kind of music and that was it. Uh, but with Charisma, like, I don't know, we just related to each other a lot more. It just felt like a, more of a friendship, not only like making music together. And you ended up hanging out a lot, right? You weren't just like making music together, but you were you were hanging out as friends most of the time. I kind of got that impression from from the documentary, maybe. Yeah, yeah, we... Um... Yeah, we did. He, I mean, he became my best friend for sure. So musically, though, at that time, I mean, West Coast rap is like blowing up, I guess. But maybe musically, that wasn't what you were more interested in. Like, how did you see yourselves in terms of what was going on yeah. in rap at the time? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, the more of the gangster rap and the player rap was, was big in, especially in the Bay Area, but yeah, the West Coast in general. But then there were some groups that were... Uh, more traditional East Coast, kind of like, I guess the far side had, had already come out at that point, you know, and they were doing well. Digital Underground was doing real well. And actually Digital Underground, they got a hold of our demo tape and they really liked it and they showed it to a record label and that's what got us signed. And so the first tour that Charisma and I went on, okay, maybe the only tour, I guess, uh, we went to Germany. I just remember the guy from Digital Underground was telling us about this guy Tupac that he who was his dancer and you know like he was saying oh yeah Tupac like man it's so hard touring with him because he gets into trouble like every city we go to and oh wow um, yeah but it was before he was really rapping it was before 
any of that, you know, before even I get around or any of that came out. But yeah, I mean, the guys from Digital Underground basically were the reason that we got picked up by a label in the first place. And then that label, so it's called it was called Hollywood Basic, right? And it was actually owned by the Disney company overall, right? Yeah, it was um, Disney. And they, it seems as though they maybe just didn't know what to do with you or it, they... I don't think they ha- did. I think they just, I, I felt like they signed us for our image because like I, at that point people were saying I looked like the guy in 90210 and then Charisma looked like the Fresh Prince <laughs> and like, oh, these guys are like happy-go-lucky fun, like it's fun rap. But we took our music really seriously as, as well. Um, it wasn't like supposed to be novelty or anything like that. And then they started talking about like bringing outside producers in and stuff. And mm-hmm. because the music I made was too like underground or too, you know. And I, I think, yeah, so that always stuck with me as far as like when I started my own label, like I, I don't want to be that guy. I think with my label, I'm like that guy the opposite way. Like when someone's making stuff that's too commercial, I'm like, no, reel it back in. Like, the other direction <laughs> put some more dirt on it please <laughs> so the yeah. next thing that happens is that everything flips upside down i guess um charisma dies charisma died in 1993 where where were you up to um when he was shot because i guess you were imagining that you would keep working on music but maybe have a, a different plan for for beyond that label or something yeah so actually that label um the head of the label had cancer. The head of that division of the hip hop division, his name was Funkin' oh, wow. Klein, and he got cancer. And he never really told any of us, but we saw that he, you know, went from um, being healthy to having a cane to being in a wheelchair. And, and he always kept like that secret. And then that that label ended up folding, and they let go of all the artists. And when they, we were one of the artists that were let go of, and right. they gave us money when they you know, to sign a release so he wouldn't sue him or whatever. And Charisma, yeah, just, he was robbed and he kind of resisted and that was it for him. But we were supposed to be in the studio that day. And yeah, and I remember he called and left a message on my pager that he wasn't going to make it and stuff. Like, oh, something came up. I'll, I'll see you tomorrow instead or something. But at the time when, I mean, when we were signed to the label, it felt almost like we were trying to make music for them, like, Rather than making music for ourselves, we were trying to guess what they would like and what would, you know, the people would like. After we got released from that label, we started making music just for ourselves again. And I think some of my favorite stuff was the stuff that was done after we got dropped from that label, like this song called I Got Methods, which was, I mean, on Spotify that has the most, you know, the most streams out of any song. So it ended up being like, you know, the closest thing to a hit, I guess. It's it's interesting to think of it having an afterlife to the extent that it has like a ton of hits on Spotify, I know, which is exactly. so much different to the scenario that you yeah. were in. I mean, I'm sure you you must have been just knocked knocked over by this tragedy for a long while, but you do end up making music again and and resolving to continue and start a label. Um, tell me a little bit about how you how you found that resolve to continue even though you'd lost a creative partner. Well, that was the irony is before I worked with them or before even seeing myself as a recording artist, I I wanted to do a label and put out records. When I met him, I was like, oh, I don't want to be on the business side. I'm just going to be strictly creative. <laughs> and then when, when he was taken, I mean, I, for a while I didn't 
yeah, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And it, it took probably like a good year. And then eventually um, I went back to my original plan of the, the record label. When you set up Stone's Throw, uh, that was 1996. And I guess around that time you were doing this uh, marketing degree, right? You decided to study. Um, well, the degree, I, I got the degree in 92 before Charisma passed Oh, away. wow. And actually, yeah, we were already signed to the major label and I, and we were, I was going to quit school. <laughs> and my I mom see. was like, no, over my dead body. And, you know. <laughs> so did you graduate? I did, but yeah, I only had one like semester to go when, when I, when we signed with the label and, you know, you get a big chunk of change thrown at you and you just feel like <laughs> you almost don't want to get your degree because then you won't try as hard to do what you really want to do, which is be a recording right. artist. Um, did you learn anything useful? I think what I learned more was just kind of like, it wasn't like specifics. It was just, I don't Yeah. Just things kind of more in, in the back of my mind. Like in a way I probably learned what I was supposed to do, but I ended up not doing it anyways. <laughs> that sounds about right. So your first album is Peanut Butter Breaks. And I guess this is music that you'd been working on for some time rather than music that you'd, that you'd kind of come up with more recently. How, was, it, was it like that? Was it kind of newer music to that period or was it a kind of collection of stuff that you'd had for a while? Was it stuff that you'd planned to release on... Uh, with Charisma? I think there was one song that I called Charisma on there that was supposed to be a track for him and then we never recorded it. But um, yeah, I did that record. He Charisma died in 93 and that record came out. Peanut Butter Breaks came out in 94 for another label. Okay. And they were putting out like instrumental hip hop records and stuff. And I never really was interested in that so much. I was like always wanted to make songs with rappers, but I figured, mm. well, this is an opportunity for me. You know, this these guys are... Yeah, they're they're all set up, and I just have to give them the tracks. What was the immediate impact of that record? How did that kind of change what you were doing, or was it you just filed it away and moved on and set up Stone's Throw? No, so I put that out, and it was it did well um, at that point. Like breakbeat records were doing well, like for basically for people who wanted to sample drums and stuff, right? And so I would every song on that. Peanut Butter Breaks record has like at least one little open point where the drums are by themselves so someone can sample it. And then Yeah, I hadn't thought of that actually. I guess there would have been a lot of DJs, even in like dance cultures at the time, who would have found the stuff like that really useful for sampling. Yeah, and I was hearing my stuff like was just like uh, this incubus big hit with, like they used it and um <laughs> it's just like weird like pop stuff that I didn't even think, you know, uh that song uh garbage from the oh that group garbage they, they used it for this track that was from the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack and oh, if you really? put that soundtrack on you press play the first thing you hear is my drums and then everything else wow. kicks in and I'm like wow this is weird because <laughs> um, I yeah I just was making it for just a real niche like hip hop underground market but and one of the one of the fans of that record was Jay Dilla right yeah and I, and through that record I yeah I met Dilla why well, I, I actually met House Shoes. Well, House Shoes called the number on my record, which was my pager number again. Yeah, you could do that then. <laughs> Just put your number on a record, yeah. sure. Give me a call <laughs> or a page. <laughs> yeah, and then I called him back and he used to always order it for the record store he was at. And then, yeah, he would always tell me about this guy, JD. And he was like, oh yeah, JD is like a fan of uh, of the Peanut Butter Breaks. But yeah, you got to hear his music. And, you know, it was before I really, he 
got in like nearly anywhere as far as working with people. I think it was before Q-tip met him and stuff. So then things start coming together in the next few years, I guess. And you kind of form a, a bit of a, a musical crew, I guess, because um, you you have links, you've forged this link with Dilla, who's in Detroit. And then also you put out this record by Loot Pack, uh, and that's Mad Lib's first project. Um, tell me about how you, I mean, how did you actually find the Loot Pack crew? Where were they? Yeah, so at that point I was working, I was living in San Francisco, and I was also working at a record distributor. Um, well, before I started Stone Solo, this was like in 95, I was working at the distributor and I heard Lupac's first 12-inch that their dad put out. <laughs> and I didn't know that it was, well, it was Madlib's dad. So I called the number on that record and I, I arranged a meeting with them to sell it for my distributor. And I, I got a I sold a thousand copies, which, you know, before that they hadn't really sold any. So they were excited about that. And then I told them, hey, I have my own label, like... I'd love to put out your stuff on my label, like put out albums. And, you know, at that point they had known about Charisma and a couple of the other records that were on my label. And they were like, yeah, cool. We're with it. So at that, yeah, that was 96, 97, I guess. Uh, I'd only had a few artists on the label and they lived in Oxnard, which is close. It's like an hour north of LA. I guess it was about five hours to San Francisco from Oxnard in a car. So they would come up and it was just so hard to ever get a hold of Madlib, but it was like basically through Wild Child. Wild Child was the main rapper in the loop pack. Now he's busy with his son, who's like a big actor. He's on this TV show called Blackish, which is oh really a big American yeah. show. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, so cool. his son is this this kid Miles Miles Brown, but um, so yeah, Wild Child was the one in the group that I was always. He was kind of the contact. Matt and Madlib was slippery. Yeah, he was just awkward and shy. I didn't really didn't want to talk to anybody really. But once I got to know Madlib, like I, you know, I, we got really close. And again, it was like the sense of humor and stuff. But yeah, through Loop Pack, then I, I remember on one of the tapes, like there was this Quasimodo album that was on the back of the tape, and I asked him about that. And that was really I liked that more than the Loop Pack, you know, overall. So. And Quasimoto is the the helium voiced. Yeah. Well, I guess then you didn't know who it was, right? You listened to it and was like, "Who who is this voice?" Yeah, Madlib is always like, "Oh, I don't like my my own voice." Like he said, "Oh, you know, like I sound like Guru," and so he liked the sped up sound. Like and and actually, it cut through in the mix a lot easier. Like you can hear and understand what he's saying a lot easier as Quasimoto than you could as Madlib back then. And did you have to persuade him to do more of that stuff then? No, once we did it, once once I started putting it out, he was with it. He was like, let's do it, <laughs> let's do it. But it was, you know, I don't think any of us, we didn't really know who would like it or what, but, you know, we were both excited about it. Yeah, I think that's a, Quasimoto is a good example of doing something that you, you, can't, uh, you can't really imagine if people are going to like it or not, other yeah. than you know that you do, maybe, and... And then it becomes like a total cult record. I mean, I remember being shown that record years ago and just being kind of kind of amazed that it existed even. It's like, oh, this makes complete sense, but I would never have thought of this. This is right. out there on its own. But at that time, what was your what was your vision for Stone's Throw? Did you have a strong sense of what you wanted it to be like, the kind of sound or ethos of it? Um, well, the, yeah, I guess before meeting them, like, the the my main roster was this group homeless derelicts who I really liked and encore and this guy persevere and I put out singles with all of them and automator was 
the guy who did Dr. Octagon and, you know, did many things after that, but automator, Dan, the automator is where I would go for my mix downs and stuff. And then I didn't have album deals with any of my artists. So then automator signed them all to albums behind my back. And I was just like heartbroken. I couldn't believe that number one, that he would do it. And that number two, that they would all like agree. And I never had contracts with any of my guys. I was always like, Oh, I don't believe in contracts. You know, I, I think like, I don't want, to tie anybody down who doesn't want to work with me, you know, you know, eventually like when I did speak to an attorney, they were like, Oh, well contracts, they actually, they help the label and the artist because otherwise say you guys do a song and then it go, it gets like picked up for this movie and you guys didn't like spell out how, who was going to get what, then you guys are just fighting over like, I, I think I deserve more and I deserve, no, no, I deserve more. So you know, with, with Mad Villain, I know I'm jumping around, but with Mad Villain, like my contract with him was like, he asked for a contract, not me. And I was like, okay. So I, I just hand wrote like. Who did Mad Lib? Mad, oh, Mad Villain. Sorry. So, uh, MF Doom. Oh, Doomust. Okay. Yeah. And so I said, okay, well, I'll just, I'll handwrite something. And I just wrote, um, 50, 50 <laughs> deal and here's your advance. And then I signed it and then I had him sign it. Is that legally binding? I guess it must be. I don't know, but I showed it to my <laughs> lawyer and she was like, this is a, you gotta be kidding me, you know? <laughs> and then she made, yeah, she eventually had a, a contract that spelled everything out better for everybody. But when Madlib came along, it was kind of right after all those other guys had signed with Automator and, you know, I didn't have much of a roster at all. And, but the stuff that he was making was just everything that he made was great to me. And it was all different genres. You know, he started doing the Yesterday's New Quintet. and Right. So he, at some point he kind of completes hip hop and decides he's going to be a jazz musician and completely pulls it off. I mean, I, when he told me he was going to make jazz, I didn't believe him. And I kind of like teased him about it. But then I was like, well, okay, if you really think you're going to do this, what do you need? And he's like, I just need an electric piano. And then we went and got an electric piano at a, a vintage store. And then, you know, what he did just using sampling on the electric piano was just, it was like total musicianship, you know, hardly anything. And I, and I was like, well, rather than give you an, an artist advance for yesterday's new quintet, let's just go to the vintage store and just buy a bunch of crap and like <laughs> whatever you want, you know, and, and that'll be your advance. And we just got a bunch of synthesizers and he knew everything from looking at the back of records and stuff. And, you know, he, he wanted vibes. He wanted a vibraphone, but he didn't know how to play it. And basically he, he figured it out like in three weeks. And then by the fourth week, he recorded like the whole, you know, everything for the yesterday's new quintet album. We put out the first one. Makes you sick really, doesn't it? Um, and, hey, yeah, I... and where we were living, you know, we were all roommates. It was me and him and a couple other guys. And, I mean, our our living room was just all all of his instruments, and you know the vibes were all set up because it's a like a big instrument, and the kitchen like had it had the keyboards, and you know the drums were over here. It was just we never had people over, so it it, it just seemed <laughs> it totally made sense to me. But one time when we did have someone over, they're like, "Wow, this is weird. Like, look at your kitchen. Look at this. Look at that." So you were living with Madlib at this time in this house with. Uh, I, I guess I had imagined that there was a studio in it, but it was more like this, the studio was the house. You just lived in it. Yeah. So when we when I first moved to L.A., it was uh, right by the beach and right by the airport. So so we moved there and then we were there for a year. And then the guy I was just renting and the guy that I was paying my rent to, he wasn't paying the mortgage. So the house got taken away from him. 
and then we got evicted and then I found another place. And then the second place that I, where I moved to is kind of the neighborhood that I'm in now. That had like what was was called the, the bomb shelter because the house that we were in at the time, it was like set up underground and it was built during the cold war. And, and a, the bomb shelter was like a selling point of that house. Like, Hey, if, you know, if the Cold War happens, then you guys are safe here. <laughs> when Madlib and Dilla met and started collaborating, um, what year would that have been? Well, I first started talking to Dilla around 96. We put, I put out a record with him with House Shoes. And then when we, so maybe 97 or 98, Dilla had an offshoot group called J88, which was basically Slum Village, but it was a way for them to record for another label. And yeah, that label, Groove Attack, they were like, hey, um, would you guys want to do a remix? Would you would Madlib want to do a remix for J88, for the J Dilla pro? You know, well, he wasn't called Dilla then, JD. You know, Madlib was a big fan. He's like, oh yeah, of course. And you know, th this was right when we put out the Loop Pack album and mostly everybody that I talked to that that we were fans of at the time, they all found out about Lupac through JD. So I had a, a friend of mine who became a writer and I, I guess he interviewed D'Angelo back in 98. And he asked D'Angelo, what's your favorite album? And he said, oh, it's um, Lupac. And I, I found out about Lupac through JD. You know, JD's always swearing by this record and stuff. So, <laughs> And, you know, we were like huge fans of, I mean, ma mainly Slum Village, but all the stuff, I guess, that JD did for Tribe and our side and you know all the other groups too so being fans of each other i guess started around 98 and then madlib doing that remix i think was also like 98 99 but the first time they physically met was early 2000s and j-rock would he would bring his camcorder and record everything and you know thankfully he was there and, and caught it on tape what was that meeting like because i was wondering if them collaborating would have been interesting for you because they were also both inspired by you, by a record that you made. I never really thought of that, but they, I mean, they both told me that. <laughs> I don't know how true it was, but... <laughs> but it's like three people in a room who are all very deeply inspired by each other. And, and I kind of like the idea that there's almost a non-hierarchical meeting of, of people who are just really, really buzzed about what the other people are doing. Well, the first time we met them was was Slum Village when Slum Village did a show in LA, and that was just real quick. Like, hey, what's up? Hey, I'm I'm JD. Hey, I'm Madlib. And then you know, but I would talk to JD on the phone. I guess the first time we were supposed to meet was on nine one one on nine eleven two thousand one, and then wow, we had a flight to Detroit to go there and and work on some stuff for JD's album, and. You know, that flight obviously got canceled. And then after that, Madeline was like, no, nah, fuck that. I'm not getting on a plane. For months, he was like, no, nah, I'm not going to get on a plane. And so we looked into, like, taking a train there. And it would have taken five days each way. But we were still, like, you know, we were we were down to do that. And then I was getting ready to buy the, the tickets. And then Madeline was like, no, nah, all right, fine, I'll get on a plane. Because JD was, like, trying to finish his album for MCA. And, and the concept of that album was JD rapping over everybody else's tracks. So he had, like you know, a Kanye track and a, I, I don't even remember, but it's pretty much like, you know, a who's who of like who was making beats at the time. So the few years after that, uh, that period for Stone's Throw produces some albums that would be considered 
I think foundational not only by the label standards but for for rap fans in general. Um, J Lib, Donuts, Mad Villain. Um, so Doom at some point, I guess, becomes part of the circle. Although actually, I, I felt that in the in the Stone's Throw documentary, um, I think it's quite obvious that Doom is about as slippery as you'd maybe expect him to be. Yeah, he really was. I mean, <laughs> but you know, he lived with us for a period of time as well. Right. At, at one point, it was yeah, myself, Mad Lib. Egon, who was the GM of Stone Star at the time, and Jeff. This period of time, late 90s going into early noughties, um, was a really good time for independent hip-hop, um, as it was, I guess, being called underground hip-hop. Yeah. Um, because hip-hop had had its mainstream moment, or was in its mainstream moment, and you had... Eminem and Dre, um, Jay-Z, and then there was the kind of Southern rap thing coming through with Nelly and people like that. And, and then, so you had these other channels emerging, so Stone's Throw, and then on the East Coast, uh, Raucous, um, and Def Jux. And I think this is, it's intriguing to me because hip hop had obviously started out being so, um, alternative and then it, things things change and the the alternative becomes the mainstream and the mainstream produces its own alternative um how how much was any of that on your mind at the time was it important to you to kind of stake out an alternative to what was happening in rap at the time i think by the mid 2000s we weren't really even i mean i I myself i wasn't really following what other people were doing as much i was it was so hard for me to keep up with everything Madlib was doing. I didn't have time to listen to anything <laughs> else. And I, I didn't really want to hear anything else, I guess. But, you know, when when I started Stone Star in 96, yeah, there was like a lot of, well, you mentioned Raucous, but like Fondalum and there were a lot of other like indie things that sounded kind of like Wu-Tang or like Mob Deep, you know, like that, that whole sound or, or DITC and... I mean, even looking back, I don't, I don't know much of like the mid two thousand indie stuff, I guess, or commercial stuff. Were you getting any coverage in the kind of mainstream hip hop magazines or anything? Like, would would your records have been in Vibe or The Source, places like that? Never. Okay, so it was that level of underground. Yeah, and when we like, so The Source, they like they wrote up Loop Pack, for example, and they gave us, I think, two and a half mics or three and a half or something. It was like something that upset us at the time we never got coverage we could never get an interview or anything like that for any of the mad lib stuff or and you know i remember i like at that point i was trying to get mad lib work outside of our crew like you know just like jd was doing so much stuff and as i hit up uh wendy goldstein who was i think maybe the head of motown or something and i i sent her mad libs beats and i was like this guy's you know got it and I mean, just not to single anybody out, but like pretty much everywhere I sent it, it was no one was really interested. But Madlib would always get he had a lot of interest on in the underground from like people. I mean, if you go to Discogs and you you look at his remixes that he was doing back then, it was a lot of artists that he didn't like at all, but he just needed to make rent or you know <laughs> he needed money and he he was just doing it just on the side and stuff. And I remember one day I was like, I want to do a box set of all your stuff. And then he's like, okay, but only if we can do a second box set of all the whack shit that I had to do, like just to make <laughs> ends meet. But some of it, yeah, we would just make fun of it so hard, you know, 
in the documentary. I hate to keep referring back to the documentary, but there are a lot of good jumping off points in the documentary. Yeah. But also a lot of things that aren't covered. Um, in the documentary, <laughs> there are a few mentions of the word counterculture. Um, and I feel like that's maybe instructive or meaningful in a different way for someone who's from the Bay Area as well. Uh Um, And I was curious about what you thought of the countercultural inspirations for for the label, um, whether whether there was that kind of Californian's influence of counterculture right. that kind it's of lineage like in what you were doing at all right but then i guess it's it's quite a complicated lineage isn't it because it's it's beats and it's hippies and then it's silicon valley and what is it now and i just wondered if that was the a, weed kind culture of a, too the what sorry the weed culture in california yeah. like the weed in california was just like a lot stronger right. I, I i never really was a big weed smoker but like most of really? the most of the artists that i work with are you know yeah i think living in that house it wouldn't have mattered yeah 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 it was a lot of secondhand smoke going around but like <laughs> i never like realized because people would say oh you have you guys have like a california sound of hip-hop or a west coast sound and right. there, there are those influences that we never even really thought about you know it was like a, it was our bastardization of new york rap but us not being from new york is going to make it different and and also like new york was like headphone culture like nobody has a car in new york everyone takes the train you know and so they just listen to stuff on a Walkman and with the headphones. And then in the West Coast, everybody has a car. And almost as important or maybe more important than what kind of car you have is like how good your sound system is in your car. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I, I mean, from the 90s until recently, there's always like a subwoofer in the trunk. And I remember one of my friends from the East Coast when he came to L.A. and he was in my car. He's like, I can't believe you have a subwoofer. That's so funny, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's something that you don't even really think about it's just part of the culture but what i mean by that is like a lot of the west coast stuff like the dre sound and the the g-funk you have the crisp highs and the piercing lows and (laughs) and then new york it's more about like finding the roughest like drum sounds and i mean this is how it was back then at least you know what about the influence of non-hip-hop because i know that you're into loads of other types of music as well and i wondered if maybe there was actually a um, as well as any kind of Californian counterculture, there's just sure. like a punk thing going on, a new wave thing. Well, also, I mean, the records that we were sampling from, we were, it was a lot easier for us to find records from the West Coast than maybe, you know, our New York comp- counterparts. So we were mm. sampling from psychedelic rock records a little bit more. And, mm. you know, the jazz records, I mean, that that was kind of like everybody was into that in the 90s, but we had jazz records that it was easier for us to find on the West Coast <laughs> that you might not find in the East Coast. And and punk though was that I lo- like? I a- mean, I love punk personally, and like that's why when the Beastie Boys first came out. Uh, so me in high school, I I, li- I dressed kind of punk, and I you know I buy my clothes from thrift stores and dress like the Brady Bunch and stuff. <laughs> in the eighties, when like you know that you're not supposed to dress like the seventies and the eighties or the sixties. Most of the people that listen to hip hop, they. They wore like sweats and, you know, starter jackets and baseball caps and stuff. And at that time, I I was dressed like a British New Waver or something, but then I listened to hip hop. And so I I was not really accepted by either culture, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like you have to kind of be one thing and stick to it. But when the Beastie Boys did it and they kind of made it acceptable, like they were, you know, wearing thrift store clothes and 
acting punk, but then they were making hip hop music. And it, I mean, it was kind of like silly hip hop, but then it, it still got like acceptance, like from the most hardcore, you know, like whether it's Ice Cube and NWA or whoever, they all like sampled the Beastie Boys. Um, moving into the, the kind of final stretch, kind of, I have, uh, I have these slightly dorky, um, quick fire questions. <laughs> okay. Bear with me. If Stone's Throw was an animal, what animal would it be? Oh God. Okay. Well, you'll have to do an audio description. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Stone's Throw mascot, Orbit. Whoa. She's 11 years old. She just... Why is she called Orbit? Oh, my wife named her Orbit like before I came in the picture many years ago, but, um... And what kind of dog was it, sorry? It's a Shih Tzu, Imperial Shih Tzu or teacup. <laughs> okay. Um, if Stone's Throw was a menu item, what would it be? It would be raw like sushi. I don't know. If Stone's Throw was a season, not a seasoning. I know. Just a I, was season. think, I was thinking seasoning because we were talking about <laughs> Probably springtime. But I don't know why, but a lot of our music these days is kind of yacht rocky springtime happy vibes. Would you rather be up early or out late? Mm, that's changed through the years. I think I've, I've been getting up early. Well, I kind of do both, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I get up early and I'm out late. Would you rather be in the desert or in the mountains? Uh, definitely in the desert. Well, that's the only Californian answer, really, I guess. Well, no, you do have mountains, too. Yeah, I mean, I just... You could be I in the mountains. I was just talking to, to my wife about it, and we, we don't really care to, like, be out there with the, the bears and the... Well, I was going to say snakes, but snakes are in the, the desert, so... <laughs> but we actually, yeah, we, we took Orbit to the desert one time and it was daytime and it was fine. And then once the sun went down, we, we were like out kind of in the middle of nowhere. And then we hear this <gasps> and it was a rattlesnake and we couldn't even like see where it was coming from. We're like, all right, we need to go to the car right now. Yeah. I'm not sure I fancy Orbit's chances against a rattlesnake either, to be honest. <laughs> no. And she will go straight for it. <laughs> Would you rather be in the city or the country? Um, well, this has to do with me getting older i think before it was all about the city and you know even i mean as soon as i was old enough to move out of san jose i moved to san francisco and that has a real city vibe and la i mean even though it's la is the second biggest city in the u.s but it's still well i was gonna say it doesn't have as it, de it definitely doesn't have as much of a city vibe as san francisco does i mean there's there's no public transport in la really that's being used at least that's that doesn't really answer the question <laughs> fine what was the last film you saw? My wife's always watching films and I'm like kind of watching it, but not knowing what, what it is. We just watched this Adam Sandler stupid movie last night. That was, it was just a brainless one. Cause I, I, I really have a hard time like paying attention with films. So really yeah, music if, or if nothing. It's, if it's too much of a plot then I, 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 yeah, I, I can't pay attention. So I usually just, I'm, I'm on my computer on Discogs while she watches a movie. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, in which case, what was the last record you bought? Maybe while you were watching the film. I know. Uh, there's so many. Yeah, I, I'm, I buy like... Do you buy so many records that you wouldn't be able to say what was the last record that you bought? Definitely <laughs> not. Yeah, no, I, I can't answer that one. Wow. Okay. Stone's Throw has always been committed to releasing vinyl. It seems like that's something you're still committed to doing. Um, and there's a lot. I was looking through Discogs and yeah. checking checking what you had. And there are many more um, kind of one-off or, or well not one-off but there are many more twelves and kind of bits than I was expecting there are a lot of individual um mm -hmm. uh what's the word registrations what's the word you know individual records um mm -hmm. 
And in recent years, we've seen this vinyl revival of sorts. People are kind of into buying vinyl again. They enjoy having it as an object. I think people enjoy the the ceremony of actually putting a record on and so on. But it definitely feels as though hip hop and vinyl are not integrated anymore. And I wondered if you're interested at all, kind of concerned as a as a kid who bought a record in order to uh, you know, who bought a turntable in order to sound like you were scratching. Yeah. Are you concerned that this, you know, one of the four elements, this the the vinyl skills uh, are going to kind of fade out from hip hop? I never really worry too much about that. I mean, the the new rap stuff is so yeah, it's definitely far removed from mm. the New York kind of like Bronx like origins of hip hop. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't even have anything witty to say about it, I guess, at this point, but <laughs> it's just, there are, there are young people who, I mean, I, you know, I just even see on my Instagram DMs, like a, a lot of kids in high school that are, they're digging deeper and like trying to learn about other music as well. And it, it's not like the norm, but there, there are people out there who are doing it. So, right. Yeah. It's just part of being interested in the alternative seam of the yeah. culture, I guess. I think, I mean, Tyler, the creator, you know, like when he was 15, he was really like into like the older hip hop and and then even just the the stuff that was coming out before hip hop. So I think uh, Tyler, the creator is someone who, and of future in general, is someone who, um, who makes sense within a trajectory that includes Stone Stone's though, you know, like yeah. I think um, what, what Odd Future were doing is, maybe part of well maybe do you do you feel like you can sense the influence of stone's throw on on the west coast trajectory i know that you used to have um Flylo was an intern right yeah i mean i guess it's the mad Livendilla, but someone like tyler it seemed like he was more he found about he found out about stone's throw from artists like jaunty and the step kids and you know stuff yeah. that so not the hip-hop even, not even the hip-hop and then mm. yeah i don't know how much of the hip hop he knows. I wanted to talk about a few of the quote unquote weirder records. Um, although, you know, many of them are weird in their own weird ways. Um, yeah. Someone who I think got kind of raw deal in the documentary was Gary Wilson, who mm-hmm. um, is, you know, kind of a legend, um, yeah. a strange legend, but a legend nonetheless. And I think he kind of appears as this like <laughs> kind of guy in a fright wig and some right. trash bags and he's like serenading a doll and there isn't really an explanation about why he's the whole thing. Well, I think so, I got the raw deal on that part of the, the movie too because it was like, okay, this is we were doing all this great hip hop and then one day Wolf just lost his mind and then put out Gary Wilson, you know. But tell me, um, how did you... Well, how did you originate? Did you already know who Gary Wilson was? How did you find him? Because he was like a kind of 70s punk, real eccentric, was doing these very elaborate um, kind of offensive live performances, I guess. And then he disappeared, right? Yeah, I I found out about him through my friend Dwayne, who worked at this record store called Other Music. They just actually released a documentary on that movie. Maybe that was the last movie I saw. Well, you would have paid attention to that one. (laughs) (laughs) it's like looking at discogs <laughs> <laughs> yeah i found out about gary through them and I, I actually i had a gig in new york and after my gig i asked the promoter i was like so where's my hotel and they're like oh you're just gonna stay over this guy um this guy Dwayne's house he's just you're just gonna stay at his house and i was like what like i was like all right whatever and then i, I stayed at it and then we walked to his house he lived in the bronx and 
you know, I don't, I didn't know my way around New York. I'm like, is, is this all cool or what's going on here? I went to sleep and then in the morning I just heard this crazy music. It was really weird. And I asked him what it was and he's like, oh, this is Gary Wilson. And I just loved it. And, you know, I asked him to make me a tape of it. It was too hard to get the vinyl. And then eventually there was a, a store in Philly that came up on a bunch of old copies of it. It was a record, You Think You Really Know Me, from 1977. So I bought, like, as many copies as I can get. Because they were only, like, I think $10 each or something, like, through a mail order. This was in the early 2000s, and I just gave them to everybody I knew. And I just kind of preached it like it was gospel. And I remember I turned Dilla on to Gary Wilson and Common. And so every time I saw Common, because Common used to live with Dilla... And come and be like, hey, what's up with Gary Wilson, man? <laughs> you know, at anything. He's all, that was like our little like thing. Yeah, I turned Dilla on to Gary Wilson, who he loved. And then Dilla turned me on to Bruce Hack, who is like equally like one of my favorites. Yeah, that's like a kind of early electronic stuff, right? It is, yeah. But it was kind of, I mean, he made electronic stuff and he also made psychedelic rock stuff. But so you found Gary and asked him to make some more music, I guess. Oh, How yeah, did that so happen? back to Gary, um, I wanted to put out the old record and I, I started calling Gary Wilson's like into the phone book. He just like, it wasn't really, it was before internet was like, you know. how many Gary Wilson's are there? Well, in that's the, phone the problem. Book. He didn't have the right name to, to do it that way. And so obviously I didn't, I didn't come up with anything. And then wow. this other label, they hired a, a private in, in investigator and they found him and they put out the old record and then there was a documentary that was being worked on on him and um, they asked me to no actually no I wasn't even involved in the documentary um, what happened was a magazine knew that I was a fan of Gary Wilson so they asked me to interview him oh kind of like interview magazine where an artist interviews an artist or whatever and yeah yeah I did that interview, and then at the end of the interview, I was like, hey, uh, here's my new record, by the way. You know, he gave me, like, a CD, like, that he burned of some new music. And <laughs> I was, like, really afraid to listen to it. I thought for sure I wasn't going to like it. Um, right. But I, I loved it. I, I really liked it. And I put out his, you know, contemporary music. What was he like? <laughs> well, that what was, was the other like? thing is when I was trying to put out the old album, when I spoke to the guy at the distributor who that was a lead to me, you know, because he was like that distributor that was selling his old records. They're like, oh, no, you don't want to work with him. He's a nightmare to deal with. He's terrible. Mm -hmm. And so I'm all thinking, oh, this guy's probably got anger issues and blah, blah, blah. But when I met him, he was like so easy to, to deal with. And to this day, I mean, you know, I've known him probably 15, 20 years now, and he's always been like a joy. He's like so easy. Oh, so sweet. That's I really love, nice. I mean, I love, yeah, I love hanging out with him. Like when he comes to L.A., we'll go grab a burger or whatever and he must have really interesting taste in music himself right because he has this kind of like lounge jazz background but yeah. also as a punk yeah right and it, yeah i mean because his early stuff he was playing upright bass and it's like yeah it's more jazz and then he went yeah there's not many people wave. playing upright bass in the in the scene in general exactly i think that gary wilson definitely underlines stone's throw as a kind of a place that welcomes eccentrics to a certain extent. Um, and there are, I think there are all kinds of other records on the label that, that feel 
like that to some extent. Um, maybe Baron Zen, who is yeah. your childhood friend, yeah. Steve, um, yeah. which is like a kind of lo-fi, garagey kind of stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's pop music, but it's, yeah, yeah. it's homemade. Yeah. And I mean, I guess you could say that Gary Wilson isn't so far off um, Falerio. Yeah, Falerio. In a sense, a kind of flamboyant uh, alter ego. Falerio is you, obviously. Well, not obviously. I mean, rumor has it. Right, right. Um, what does it take for Falerio to appear? Why was that suddenly a kind of avenue for expression? I don't know. I'm trying to think if Dilla ever met Falerio. I don't I think. No, Falerio was after he passed, I think. But Dilla would have loved Falerio. <laughs> um, it's weird to talk about Falerio. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Gary. Pretend he's not here. <laughs> No, because Flair and I, we always like, yeah, we always get in these arguments where we're not talking and for a long time and stuff. So Flair is just yeah. really, yeah, he's Flair is difficult. Yeah, he's the opposite of Gary Wilson. Oh right, okay. In that sense, but Gary, I mean, Gary and Flair, I get along well, but me and Flair never do. Was it about something about needing to um, make music that was unrelated to things that you'd done before, like a different kind of creative itch in some sense? Well, the Flario was basically, those songs were demos that I discovered when I was working at a record distributor. This There was this this uh, website called mp3.com where anybody can just load up their songs. It was basically like a SoundCloud, you know, before SoundCloud. And someone who was working there, he took all the worst stuff that, all the worst demos that had ever been uploaded on mp3.com and he made a compilation and it kind of circulated <laughs> around the music industry and i had a copy of that in the 90s and i would play it for my friends you know in the 2000s and then um for two of those songs like i as a dj like in the 2000s i started doing video sets like djing vjing you know where i'm playing a music video behind me and there's some songs that i always wanted to have a video for so i asked my friend Valerio, my friend at the time if he would sit in and pretend like he was the one singing those songs so he's actually not <laughs> the singer on it he's like lip syncing oh wow yeah and the songs aren't even really filario they're like somebody else but <laughs> i like it that's a good story i think that's uh it's like worthy of like a a kind of james ferraro or like a weird like vaporwave project or one of those kind of yeah it was kind of like that internet whole irony yeah. yeah and and i know there was like a website called look at look at this fucking hipster.com and they like they posted the flaria video and they just talked all this crap about him like look at who's this guy think he is you know and they were really like angry <laughs> with flaria <laughs> um another another great eccentric on the label in his own different way is dame funk mm -hmm. um and when you signed dame funk i i get the impression he was um maybe already a little bit older like not the youngest guy and he had like a normal job right. and he was making his like weird extremely funky music at home and then you decided to kind of introduce him to the world or maybe it was actually his second record that was like a a box set a five lp box set was the it the first set, or the second? Yeah, that was the first thing we put out. So, it was the first. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, so I would DJ like kind of 80s funk music a lot and, mm. you know, the aughts, I guess. Dame came to one of my gigs and he's like, hey, I, I love what you're playing tonight. Like, I, I DJ as well and I play this stuff too. And, mm -hmm. and then I went to one, of, he, you know, he invited me to one of his, his gigs. I think we were like keeping up with each other through MySpace and stuff. And then again, kind of like Gary Wilson, he like gave me his, a CD of his music one day and 
I wasn't really sure, you know, if I would like it or whatever. And I was with Koshik at the time. It was like one of my favorite uh, artists on the label that, you know, never really achieved like much success or notoriety. But uh, Koshik and I, we were listening to Dame stuff in the car and, you know, we both really liked it. So I just uh, hit up, hit Dame up and asked him about doing a record. And I think he just had so much music like that he had been doing for years and years, you know, and, and never really released any of it with the label that we just thought a, a box set might be the best way to go with it. Were there any fraught internal discussions about whether this was a sensible uh, economic decision? Just no, did we it. didn't even think about it. No, we just did it. I think it's a cool example, again, of not really knowing if people are going to be into it, but then Snoop Dogg does a record with him. And actually that right. all works out great you know yeah of course the perfect collaborator really i mean the snoop dog record i thought turned out great but it, it yeah it didn't really um do that well for us considering you know what we thought it would do i mean snoop had just put out the snoop lion and um you know it had oh yeah the reggae people record. Were, yeah people were upset about that or whatever um but i i thought the record we did was great or the record yeah. they did without me i mean they they basically did the two of them did it and you know they turned it in as is and we didn't need to send them back to the drawing board or anything it occurred to me with the dame funk box set though um that it's a kind of uh it's almost like a practical joke it's almost like a prank it's so absurd and from from what I gathered of Charisma on the documentary, it kind of struck me as something that he would have like really approved of in some way. What, doing like, the just, box set? Or? Yeah, just says like, fuck it, let's do something. It's yeah. like kind of ridiculous because there's there's hints of you guys maybe being pranksters essentially. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, Dame at that point, he didn't have a lot of fans, but his, his fans that he had were so hardcore that they would buy a box set, I felt. You oh, know? wow. So. Yeah, okay. A um, couple more things. I wanted to bring us right up to date with a Stone's Throw record that is probably my it's probably my favorite Stone's Throw of the last couple of years, and it's only just come out, which is the John Carroll Kirby record. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called My Garden. Heard the sequencing on that one's really good. The sequencing, yeah, definitely. <laughs> very, very carefully ordered by someone. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I already knew a little bit about him Um when I press play, but I think if I hadn't yeah. known about him, I would have been quite struck by this like unique sound because I know it from the Solange albums right. that he's he's contributed towards. Yeah. Um, and it's it's such a beautiful sound because it's like it's very organic in a sense and jazzy and musical, but it's also very much his own um, signature and. I guess that's why he's kind of ended up with you. But tell me a bit about about John Carroll Kirby as a kind of potentially a, a signifier of what Stones Throw are about. I mean, I didn't I didn't even think he would sign with us because of the stuff with Solange and everything. I felt like he was already like at that level where you know majors would be really interested and in, or um, he's been super easy to work with and he's like a, a real team player too. I, I noticed like I mean you know like if I'm looking on people's instagrams like on some of the other artists instagrams i notice he makes comments on their instagram or you know hits that mm-hmm. like button or whatever like it, it, yeah it just feels like he's a team player do you envisage him potentially working with other stones throw artists maybe i was thinking about that because we just so we're, we're in the middle of finishing this album with this artist steve Arrington, the singer that i've been a fan of since i was a kid and 
Steve's new album has yeah production from pretty much like all the artists that I'm working with currently. John Carroll Kirby would be yeah a great person for that. The overarching trend in the music business of recent years is this real consolidation of power in not major labels so much as tech companies, um, Apple, Google, Spotify have so much power now um, and major mm -hmm. labels are kind of entwined in that in certain ways. What do you think will be the role of an independent label in the future? I feel like it's always been promotion and money and I, I feel like it's still could be that in the future. You know, we have the, the ability to reach a lot more people than somebody who has zero Instagram followers and zero, you know, has never put anything out or hasn't been able to get a show or anything like that as far as a live show. I mean, yeah, we just have a lot of resources at our fingertips that people starting out necessarily don't necessarily have. And some people just want to work with us because of the records that we've put out in the past, you know, and just be part of that legacy, I guess. And I guess finally, what have you got coming up in the next few months that you're most excited to share with the world? Uh, well, one album is with an artist that's a little more known that hasn't signed the contract yet, but he, he's turned in the album, so I'm excited about that one. The Steve is that Arrington. an artist that cannot be named? Yeah, just because yeah. of the, yeah. But yeah, Steve Arrington, I really like how his albums turned out. There's a lot of new artists. I, we signed a, a, an artist, Maylee Todd. We haven't announced her signing yet, but she's from Canada and really talented, does everything on her own. Sophie's another one, you know, that she, her album's coming out soon. And if you were 20 years old again, or maybe even younger, whenever, you, however old you were when you wrote your high school essay, do you think you would run a record label again if you if you're 20 years old again i think so i don't i don't know what else i would do that i would enjoy i, I really i mean i i still love my job i i still feel like i'm working with artists who are making a difference yeah just fulfilling a need music that i personally like at least peanut butter wolf thank you very much awesome thanks for having me You've been listening to Relevant Parties from Carhartt Work in Progress. If you want to dive into more music from the labels in this series, check out the Relevant Parties playlist on Spotify. You can find the link in the show notes. And remember, you can subscribe to Relevant Parties so that you never miss an episode. It's available wherever good podcasts are found. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts. We'd really love to know what you think. So thanks for listening and join me next time for more stories behind the world's best record labels. Thank you.